I've realized in 2020 that no matter how bad things get, there are people that I cannot, by the strongest stretch of my creative imagination, I cannot imagine them bowing down. Welcome to East and West, a show for helping us keep our spiritual bearings as we navigate the world around us. This is Season 3, Episode 2. If you want more information on where this was recorded, this is sort of an on-the-road season, Season 3 is, go back and listen to Episode 1. It'll explain where these were recorded and how it was done. I'm pretty much going to let the sermon just speak for itself. The only thing I will note at the outset is there's this one part pretty early on in the sermon where I go into this thing about the caveman or the supposed caveman and I do a really bad job of what I was trying to do was boil down G.K. Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, into a very short snippet. And that either can't be done or at least can't be done by me. So what I want to do is give you a link to the book. The book is titled The Everlasting Man. It is one that I highly recommend in looking at a perspective of what human history might actually be like after we get past all the fabrications and false suppositions that really don't have a whole lot of evidence to back them up, even though they allegedly do. But it's called The Everlasting Man. I'll attach a link to the free Gutenberg digital version in the synopsis or the blurb of this podcast. You can check it out there. I'll say, I mean, it's of course the whole book, but even if you just read the first chapter, you'll have gotten a much better picture than I portray in this sermon of what he's actually trying to say and how he's trying to say it. Just the first chapter. And what I think will happen, or at least what happened to me, if you make it through the first chapter, you're going to want to read the next chapters because it is so logical and so well articulated and so eye-opening. So anyway, The Everlasting Man, check the link if you like. Otherwise, let's get to the book of Isaiah. I thank you for tuning in to East and West, and I pray that God will bless you with the truth through this message. Enjoy, everybody. Isaiah chapter 1. Now this morning we looked at the first four verses, and today I want to look at the next four. Two things I ought to add while y'all are getting there, and I should have said this this morning maybe, but if you look at Isaiah chapter 1, the whole chapter, you could divide it into sort of four topical sections. The first one would be us as children, humans as children, which we looked at this morning. The second one would be the, the disobedient children of part 1, are punished. That's the second part, and they ignore it, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. The third part, which we won't get to, but it's it's notable, is religion, rituals, when they're empty. So they're disobedient children. They're punished, but ignore it, but they do seek a cure. They just seek it in the wrong place. They seek it in tradition in and of itself as a thing that can save you absent of God. And I wish we could get to that tonight, but we won't. And then the fourth part is true redemption and what real salvation looks like apart from the rituals that can be very, very empty. And so anyway, let's start in verse 5. This is the part where the children are from this morning are punished, but they don't get it. Verse 5, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. 
The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Join me in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word, and I pray that You will teach us tonight and help us to walk closer and closer to You as each minute passes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second thing I'll say about Isaiah that I might should have said this morning, and it's going to be particularly useful tonight. It seemed off topic at first, but I'll come back around to it. I think it's useful to kind of know what's going on in the world at the time that he was writing. Now, I said this was the 8th century B.C. So remember, that counts backwards. So from roughly the birth of Christ, go back prior roughly 700, 800 years. And he's writing, the northern kingdom is being exiled. I think there's a hint of that in verse 8. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in the vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. All around them, their nation is falling apart. And the northerns have already been exiled by Assyria. Some other things that were going on around the Mediterranean, that sea that was really at that time the world. And I looked some of these up. The first ancient Olympic Games are attributed to this century. That's interesting. 766 B.C. in Greece. Speaking of Greece, Greece during the 8th century was the strong empire spreading around the Mediterranean and colonizing. Rome, which followed Greece as, as Greece phased out, Rome was phasing in, is traditionally considered to have been founded in 753 by Romulus. That's the same century that Isaiah's writing, the 8th century. Rome is, is founded. The longest standing empire, I suppose, that the earth has known to date. And also, a literary literature teacher like myself appreciates this one. The Greek poet Homer, the blind Greek poet, was writing during this century, if he ever lived at all. There's some debate on that. But he wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. In other words, around the Mediterranean, the world was not some sort of cave-dwelling, savage land. It was highly cultured and highly sophisticated and highly complicated. And I think that's, that's going to be useful. While Isaiah's writing, that's the context. Now this morning... I read an excerpt from Rachel Newcomb, and her point was that instead of what we believe, that God made man in our image, her article in the Washington Post argued a very popular argument that man has made God in our image. Like we created God and we made him look like us or act like us, talk like us, have legs like us, that sort of thing. Her, if you read her whole article... The whole premise of it was based on an, an idea of man, a vision of man as this creature that slowly developed from very, very beastly to very, very civilized. The whole notion is, is pretty well baked into the modern view of history that man went from beast to savage to civilized. And once you establish that, well, as he progressed and you know, developed from an animal to a man, he also made up gods to suit him along and along. And her argument was based on that, slowly evolving from nothing to something. One problem I think is very important on that is they're basing it on evidence of the what's called literally the prehistoric man. Now, G.K. Chesterton, this was an English theologian, 
made an interesting point on this. Prehistoric, that word, literally means prehistory. In other words, it's a part of history that we don't know anything about by evidence. That's the, that's the reason we call it prehistoric. They didn't write things down. They didn't have ledger books to document their doings and their comings and goings. They didn't leave artifacts other than just the few, you know, a stone here, uh, a spear there, or whatever. A, a scrawling on a cave, perhaps. But Chesterton said this, the earliest man that we do know about, the historic man, not prehistoric, we don't know anything about that. It's all... I really believe they just make things up is kind of my belief. I think they just make things up. And they say it with such scientific arrogance that, that if you're not reading between the lines, you buy it. But the first thing we see historic man doing is being very civilized. He's not this Neanderthal. I mean, go way back. Chesterton said all you got to do to shed light on that whole deception is look at Egypt and Babylon. That was his two answers. These ancient civilizations, they weren't running around with clubs and living in caves. They were highly sophisticated. Egypt and Babylon, for him, answered the whole problem. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. To buy that man just sort of accidentally happenstance from beast to savage to civilized requires a certain amount of faith. And as a line I didn't read from Newcomb this morning, but I'll read it now because I think it, it sums it up. She was basing her article on this book by a man named Reza Aslan called God, a Human Story. And it's the same premise that, that we made up God. Mankind made up God. But she wrote this about that book. She said, nonetheless, Aslan's, that's the author of the book, his fluid writing style makes the reader inclined to drop any lingering questions and accept his assertions on faith alone. And that's, in my limited perspective on the modern mentality, I think that's what happens. The guy who wrote that book saying that man created God, he, he had such a, a fluid writing style. His rhetoric was so compelling that even though there's problems in it, even though there's discrepancies, even the Washington Post writer admitted there were, there were holes in his argument but she said his fluid writing style makes the reader inclined to drop any questions and accept it on faith alone. And we get ridiculed for accepting things on faith alone. It's a double standard. I happen to believe that Adam and Eve were articulate. I happen to believe that, that early man was made in God's image and was highly capable and had wisdom and created immense civilizations with great complexity. Of course, it takes time to build things, but I don't think that's a deficiency in the man. It's just, good heavens, you got to give them time to have kids <laughs> before you can populate the city. And so we take things on faith alone, but so do they. The only difference is there's this veil of scientification to it, a certain arrogance that they say it in such a way it sounds so true, that fluid writing style. And so I want to be careful with that because... Verse 3, the ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger. There's a connection here. In other words, God is saying, y'all are my children. Even an ox knows his master, but Israel won't obey me. 
He's drawing on a distinction that that chasm, that giant gully between animal and man. It's bigger than the evolutionists would have you think. It's bigger than that sort of slow progression would have you think. It's immense. And what I read you from verse 5 and 9, in other words, Israel's being beaten. You know, now they're not like you would beat uh, behind a mule in a plow or you might whip a horse behind a cart. They're not literally being beaten in that way, but they're being punished. They're being invaded. Uh, they're being, there's, there's pestilence, laid waste, overthrown by strangers. Your head is an open wound, open sores. But what's fascinating about it is, why should you be beaten anymore? Why, verse 5, why do you persist in your rebellion? That's what makes us human. If you beat a dog, he'll eventually quit doing whatever it is. But humans, you ever known a human who the more, the more you upped the punishment, the more resolved they were to break it? I certainly have. I read about a man, he was on an, a jet airliner, and they hit serious turbulence. And there was a real fear among the people that, that we're going down. And he, he noticed that suddenly everybody was praying. Things got rough. They started praying. But what he wrote about was how fascinated he was that when they, they did make it through the turbulence and they were able to land, and when people got off and he'd see them, even himself in the terminal of the airport, how they were just back to business as usual. Gonna be, I'm going to be late for my meeting now. How quickly we turn from things that are really, really focusing our attention. These, you know, September 11th is another very tragic but very real example of that. I remember after it, in 2001, there was a revival of sorts. There was a, a nationwide, or there was at least felt nationwide to me, it felt like we were turning to what mattered. But how long did that last? And so there's this idea that, and I'm not saying, it's, it's a deeper question than I can answer, or any human can answer, did God cause X, Y, or Z event as a sort of punishment? I don't think we're supposed to know that. But I do think that all things can work to draw mankind to Himself. I think that God is always in the business of drawing you and me closer to Him. That's what He does. And He can use an event that maybe He instigated or maybe an event that we just brought on ourselves or maybe an event that just happened. Some things just happen. But nevertheless, all things can work for the good of drawing man closer to God. I'll give you a verse on that because I really don't... When I get to the COVID and just the... 2020 has been a year, hasn't it? My goodness. And when I get to some of the 2020 stuff, I don't, I don't know if it's the hand of God or the hand of the devil or the hand of accident or the hand of man. But here's what Jesus said on that subject. I don't want, to, I don't want y'all to think I'm saying something that I'm not. Jesus said, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. They were going around kind of like with that blind man. Jesus is going to heal this blind man. And they said, now who sinned? Him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. You know, and that, he, he totally just ruined their equation. Well, he must, 
He's having a hardship, therefore he must have done something wicked. And Jesus said, no, this is for the glory of God. And the same thing with the Tower of Siloam. It fell and it apparently killed 18 people. So there's a tragedy, a very real hardship. And they're, they're apparently in the Jewish mind, they were accusing those, they must have done something wrong. We all do this. Somewhere in the back of our minds, you know, well, they, they must not be living right. And Jesus said, it doesn't work that way. You think, they were, you think you're any better than them? Unless you repent. And so the whole, whether it was of God like a plague of locusts on Egypt, which was clearly the hand of God, or whether it was something akin to an accident like the tower that killed the 18 people, the answer is the same. Repent and turn to God. And all things can draw people closer to Him. But the difference, back to my point, the difference between the verse 3 animal, like an ox or a donkey, and the verse 5 through 9 human who can really grit his teeth and not change is the just incredible resolve of humanity to be stubborn. Some children, the more you punish them, the more determined they are going to be to not give you your way. And they're going to have it their way. Some students at school, the more you throw the book at them, you... Buckle up because you're in for more of a resistance. The FBI, their hostage negotiator, there's something called the paradox of power. And it's the same, essentially this same point that if you're negotiating a hostage situation, the more you flex your muscles, the harder it's going to be to get them to surrender. The point of the paradox of power is you think the more tanks you bring in, they're going to white flag and get out of there. But humans aren't like that. We're not logical creatures. We, we do things against all rationality. We're essentially, sin is essentially insanity. It's a form of insanity. Life is being offered to us, but yet mankind chooses death. Light is being offered to us, but yet we choose darkness. I read one book about this child. It was a horrible book, story really, of this abused child. And he was abused for years by his mother. And one of her forms of abuse of the many was to starve the child. And it is a heartbreaking thing. But he got to a point over the years where she would, what little bit she fed him, he would leave it on the plate. She'd give him a spoon of rice a day or something. And he'd leave it. I mean, think about that. That's, that's humanity. We, we get to this point where we have immense resolve in things. Now that example is not God. Because God as our Father is not abusing us. But as Paul says, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. There's abuse which is horrible and God will never abuse us despite what He's accused of with the whole problem of evil and why is there pain and suffering in the world. But He will discipline. And we can't say that He won't. Just because that blind man hadn't sinned or just because that's not why he was blind Hardships do come from sin. Hardships do come from sin. Sometimes they're brought on deliberately by God like locusts on Egypt. The Pharaoh was disobeying God's command and so the locusts and the frogs and the ten plagues came. Sometimes it's just brought on by our own self. You know, if, if I tell our daughter, like for instance, we were in the mountains once at this cabin and we, there was a wood-burning stove in the corner and we... Initial rule, you know, when we got there is don't go near the stove. And so, of course, first time we turn our back, it's like don't push the red button. She immediately goes to the stove and touches it. Burn herself real bad. 
Did we cause that? You know, that that's a, sometimes you bring by your disobedience, you just sort of bring a, a built-in punishment onto yourself. Sometimes it's sent by God, like with Egypt. Either way, the goal is the same. As Paul said, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. You can either bow up under discipline and just dig in your heels and refuse to change. You can bow up or you can bow out, which is not a whole lot better. Just give up. Or you can bow down. And that's what it's all about. Bowing down. The difference between an animal and a human is a great gulf between the two. And I think one of the differences is we have an immense capacity of free will. We just have an immense capacity to choose our path. And God gave us that. We're made in His image. He's a creator. He can choose. We're creators. We can choose. We can make all kind of bad decisions. We have the freedom, the horrible, beautiful freedom to do that. That's what separates us from the animals. I am going to read a quote before I move on. Uh, this is a, I mentioned G.K. Chesterton. I think this is a, a good quote to, to kind of close the door on that topic about the difference between a man and an animal. And uh, I can't, It's kind of long, but I think you all will like it. He says, G.K. Chesterton says, if you leave off looking at books about animals and men, and if you begin to look at animals and men themselves, you will observe that the startling thing is not how like man is the brutes, but how unlike he is. It is the monstrous scale of his divergence that requires an explanation. That man and animals are alike is in, sen in a sense a truism but that being so like, they should then be so insanely unlike, that is the shock and the enigma. That the ape has hands is far less interesting to the philosopher than the fact that having hands, he does next to nothing with them. He doesn't play knuckle bones or the violin. He doesn't carve marble or carve mutton. People talk of barbaric architecture and debased art, but elephants do not build colossal temples of ivory, even in the Rococo style. Camels do not paint even bad pictures. I like that. Though equipped with the material of many camel's hair brushes. Certain modern dreamers say that ants and bees have a society superior to man's. They have indeed a civilization. But that very truth only reminds us that it is an inferior civilization. Whoever found an anthill decorated with the statues of celebrated ants? I love that. They can't, animals, for all that they can do, a beaver can build a dam, an ant can build a, a hill. They're nothing like us. There's, the, there's enough similarities that we can know that God made us all, but they're nothing like us. They don't, they don't have statues to the great fallen heroes of ants like we have busts of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. For all the things that a monkey's hands look like man's, when have you ever seen one do anything with them? And yet even the most simple man can paint something. And so there's a, the gulf is, is immense. And I think one of the trademarks of it is our free will. We have a capacity as children of God to persist in our own way. And that's the scary part. So anyway, I bring us to 2020. Here we are. And I, it just seems like it's been a lot. Some unprecedented things. You golf fans, the Masters got canceled. 
When does that ever happen? You know, but that was just one of many things that got canceled. Huddle House closed. I didn't know that ever happened. You know, they're they're open twenty four hours a day, seven days a week since the day I was born, and then they closed. COVID's a strange. This is a strange time. We all know that it's a strange time. Sparked by COVID, there was what you might call the Great Recession again, the economic dip, which is just natural. A lot of unemployment. My heart goes out to. I mean, I I know there's all sorts, but I. For some reason, I just think of waitresses. They just really took a hard hit. But a lot of people did. Just their jobs, by the nature of their jobs, couldn't go on with everything shutting down. Hotels and travel, airlines, bus, tourism, a lot of things. So there was the recession. In the middle of all that has been this racial train wreck, which has just broken my heart. You know, like the the 4th of July events in Atlanta with the, the looting and the riot and those I think it was eight people that got killed, and one of them was a small girl who went past a barricade that was not a police barricade. It was some street justice thing, and they said, you're not going to go down. Anyway, it really breaks my heart, and I'm in the thick of it, you know, with my girls and with the, the life we lead. It's a big mess. It's been an ugly thing. There's murderous hornets in Washington State, or there was dust from the Sahara Desert, which apparently that happens regularly. I never heard of it before, but it, I saw pictures from Panama City when it had crossed the Atlantic. It kind of freaked me out a little bit. There's a land hurricane in Iowa. I think it's over now, but it was a week or two ago. Destroyed a lot of crops. And now we've got two tropical storms hitting New Orleans at the same, or hitting the Gulf Coast at the same time. It just seems like it's been a year. 2020, you know, my wife and I were talking on the way home. Is there something biblical about this year? Can we find something about that number? Jesus said this, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Birth pains. They get stronger and they get closer together until eventually the delivery of the child, which in the case of this metaphor is the end time, the coming of Christ. As Paul said, we're closer now than we were when we first believed. Now we could be alarmist and say, well, 2020, look at what's all going on. This is clearly it. But that's not Jesus' way. Anybody that tells you they know when it is is not of God. Jesus said, I don't even know. The only one that knows is the Father. Jesus didn't know. I certainly don't know. And neither does anyone else. But what we should do, whether there's a dust storm or a COVID or a race riot or not, is watch. We're always to be on watch like the good servants who were left in charge of the house to take care of the master's affairs and feed his people 
Blessed is that servant doing that when he shows back up because he's going to come at an hour when you don't expect it. My point, I guess, is in, is in verse 5. Why do you persist in your rebellion? This is the, the sledgehammer that has hit me in 2020. This, this is my 2020 revelation. I have come to realize, and you might know people that, uh, I would actually, I would challenge you right now to think of people in this category. I've realized in 2020 that no matter how bad things get, there are people that I cannot, by the strongest stretch of my creative imagination, I cannot imagine them bowing down. I just can't get that visual in my head. I, I cannot picture them bowing down and worshiping God. And that breaks my heart. I can't get the visual of them humbling themselves before God. You may know people like this. And you know, we think, well, if things get bad enough, surely, surely they'll come to a point and realize that there's got to be more to life than materialism. There's got to be more to life than what we can see and touch. I don't know. I don't know. Like it says, I think in the book of Revelations, the summer has ended, the harvest is past, and we are not saved. What would it take for them to bend the knee before their Creator? Even Pharaoh had officials who begged him. I wrote down this verse. How long will you, how long will you let Moses be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. And here comes the line. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? He, it was ruined. And even his officials were saying, just let them go. Just humble yourself before God and just do what He's telling you to do. Even his officials were saying that. Don't you see that Egypt is ruined? What would it take to not depend on man? To not depend on man and man's government and man's creativity and man's ingenuity the Bible says the help of man is worthless. The horse is made ready for battle, but the victory rests with the Lord. What would it take to humble some if my people would but humble themselves and pray? I'd heal their land. 2020 has really woken me up to that. The harder you beat some children, the more persistent they remain in their rebellion. And I'm not saying I'm immune from that or that I'm vacant of pride. But the mark of a Christian is that we do bow and worship. And we do ask for divine help. And we plead our case with an unseen maker who is, we believe, listening. And so I'll leave you on a happy note. Because that sledgehammer of 2020, my, my 2020 sledgehammer epiphany of my life is a very painful one. And it's really bothered me. But verse 8 and 9, which I've read once, I'll read it again, leaves us on a happier note. And this is what the church is, by the way, I think. The daughter of Zion of Jerusalem is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been 
like Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah were, of course, destroyed. Doesn't that verse 8, the hut, the shelter, the city, doesn't it remind you of Noah's ark? The flood is raining death over the whole world. But there's that ark. And if you'll just come aboard, you'll make it. If the Lord had not left us some survivors, there's always that theme in the Bible of a remnant, a remaining remnant. That's the church. The ark is Christ. The New Testament says that. And for man to climb aboard, we can't stop the flood. We can't prevent the deluge. We can't, these wars and rumors of wars, pestilence and earthquakes and famines, we can't stop that. But we can plead with men to come aboard. Come aboard and be saved. Come in out of the rain. Or like the hymn says, come home. That's the story of the Bible. I want to thank you for listening to Season 3, Episode 2 of East and West. It was again from the book of Isaiah, and the Season 3, Episode 3 will also be from Isaiah as we continue this little seven-part series, this seven-part, seven-episode season. One quick correction from the tail end of that message that you just heard. I mentioned a Bible verse, the summer has ended, the harvest has passed, and we are not saved, something along those lines. And I think I quick referenced that it was probably from Revelation. I was just kind of going from memory there rather than from notes. And it's not. I looked it up later one of the advantages of podcasting, right? You can do a little fact-checking and fix the things that you said from the pulpit that turned out not to be accurate. It's Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. Powerful and frightening verse that'll shake you right down to your knees in a good way uh, because it is on our knees that we pray. And this is really ultimately a sermon about humbling ourselves before God that is so much stronger and so much more loving than we can be without Him. And so I pray that that'll get us all on our knees in prayer. Until next time, press on, everybody.